Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, October 3rd of 2023, where we, laypersons and a pastor, are gathering at 6 a.m. Eastern Time from wherever we may be uh, to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday. And this Sunday is October 8th. We're working to be faithful to Lectionary Year A, and here's how it works. We prepare independently in advance of the discussion after receiving some formative questions from this week's leader, and then in this podcast, we share, question, and challenge each other. And here are the folks joining us in today's discussion. Bill Hall in St. Petersburg, Florida. Sarah Mickelson in Tampa. I'm Don Upton in Charlotte, North Carolina. And our leader today is our friend Sarah Mickelson. She's going to guide us through the scripture and some questions. And we always commend the questions we come up with to you to test and use as you moderate and facilitate classes. Sarah, how are you doing today? Good morning. And we are going to the vineyard. I am so excited. One of my favorite conversations to have almost every time is about a vineyard. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 46. Um these are hard parables that we're working through in Matthew. Um, so I'm going to lay it out there that any good thoughts you have about this, we would love to hear them. The, the passage opens with this. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press into in, in it, built and built a watchtower. He then leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect the produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again he sent slaves more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at harvest time. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, people that produces the fruit of the kingdom. The one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they realized that he was talking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. And that ends the reading of our scripture. Well, it's said that a vineyard takes about five years to produce and that it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of money um, some forecast about $20,000 to move from vine to producing vineyard. With that thought in mind, 
I'm thinking about the parables that we've talked about the last couple of weeks. After considering the parable of the debt-forgiving king, the generous vineyard owner who pays laborers from all points of day, the vineyard-owning father with two sons from last week, what do you think this parable teaches us, or what does this parable tell us or demonstrate about God? What do you got for me, Bill? Um, first of all, Sarah, I will stress what we alluded to in the pre-recording, that parables are a, a, an opportunity and a challenge. They invite us to open our imagination. Uh, Jesus says, it's like this, it, it's like that. And yet the challenge is how literally do we apply every detail to uh, God? Because your, the heart of your question is, what do we learn about God from this parable? And that's an excellent uh, focus. So with that caution in mind, um, looking at the three parables you mentioned, um, it's certainly not accidental that the writer of this gospel juxtaposed them because there's kind of an escalator that we're on. Uh, We um, deal with, uh, in effect, two human beings, one who's forgiven the debt but in turn won't forgive others. Uh, And there's a harsh judgment of that lack of forgiving as one has been forgiven. Then there are the two sons who uh, one says he won't obey the father but does. And the other says, oh, yeah, I'll do what you want, dad, but but doesn't. Uh, And now uh, we've escalated from those two sons uh, to workers who successively heighten their violent actions against the vineyard owner's messengers, ending with the workers killing even the owner's son, absurdly believing that in so doing they will inherit the kingdom. It's important to remember, unless I'm misreading the aggregate here, all of these messages are primarily aimed by Jesus at the religious leaders. They are the ones he's addressed, and he's in the temple. He doesn't leave the temple till a couple of chapters later. Uh, so I think, Sarah, a part of the important message is we are the ones being addressed. The three of us are on a podcast hoping humbly with preparation to offer some interpretation. And there's a powerful load of responsibility on anyone who would seek to guide others uh, in their spiritual journey. Um, And last week, the parable we studied was preceded by the religious leaders challenging Jesus's authority. This week, In the story, there's no question about the vineyard owner's authority. (laughs) He owns the vineyard. He leased it out to tenants, and yet, nevertheless, the workers take it upon themselves to rebel destructively. And like the vineyard owners, workers, we are called to do God's work on earth, and we are accountable to God for how we seek to bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So, I like your focus on what do we learn about God, 
But Sarah, it's also what do we learn about ourselves in the light of God's ownership of the vineyard. And individually and collectively, we are capable of acting contrary to God's command to do justice, love, kindness, and to live and act humbly in the face of God's sovereignty. And I, I want to believe that my level of resistance and even rejection would never reach the level of the murderers, workers in the parable. Nevertheless, I and we are capable of acting in a similar way. So it tells me that God has clear expectations, and it is my responsibility how I respond to them. Thank you. Don, what are your thoughts? What do these parables tell us or demonstrate about God to us? I'll build on what Bill just said right at the end of his comments, uh, saying that uh, the sharpness, the outrageousness of this, I would accept is real. It's got to be familiar. Even though everyone listens is outraged, uh, it sure seems like the world I live in. The world I live in was a lot closer to this than the vineyard that the Creator built. And I think that contrast is what God's working with in a very, he's working with in a very sharp way. The reason I think it comes together is I think about the old expression, oh, possession's nine-tenths of the law. Mm -hmm. Therefore, mine, mine, mine. And you can, you could use the example of the smallest possessions or the largest possessions. Mine. Mine now. Of the children. And then, you know, oh, he pushed me. She bit me. She, I mean, you know, we can take it to the most simple things that lead to other kinds of uh, outrages. So there's so much chaos here. So I think, you know, what do we learn about God? God wants and insists that we examine our hearts. Is the God, my God insists that I examine my heart and will put before me, for anyone, the most extreme of circumstances. And in this case, not so extreme at all. The things we do to keep what we have, what we believe we're entitled to, is acting like God and excluding God from his own vineyard. Uh, I think it forces uh, an examination. God forces that for everyone. I'm reading this 2,000 years after it was expressed. What would you do, Don? What would you do? How do you react to these things? Uh, it, are there people saying, mine, 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 and going to quite extreme behaviors to be able to keep it. Uh, a ready kingdom, I think this is important. Jump over the fact that this kingdom's ready. And Sarah, you talked about a little bit when it comes to the planting of the vineyard. This, this story begins, it's planted. It's ready. All the infrastructure is needed to function. It is functional. And I would say that it's perfect. Perfect place. Ready to go. Uh, and, but needing an engagement needing an effective, dedicated, thorough, professional engagement, which does not really take place because it's not, in, it's not with the, the owner. Uh, it's not created by me. It's not created by the listener. It's not created by the workers. And, then, and there is no vineyard without it. So there's no creative impulse here. The creation in the beginning, in the beginning, there was a vineyard. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, come in. What, what do you do? What's the work to be done? What is your job? 
How do you have that relationship within that world? But it's in this as if, as if they created it. Nine-tenths of the law of possession. I didn't make it, didn't create it. I didn't even imagine. But it's mine now, and I'll go to extremes to be able to keep it. And then uh, I, I think it puts everybody who's responding to this in a position to state the obvious and then be in a great contrast with what, what, what Jesus is trying to put that in front of him. I'll, I'll finish by going, Jesus is willing to show in the most extreme form the chaos of the world in which we live in and that we are responsible for. You know, it's not like, oh, I was born into chaos. It's like chaos was created. We'll kill the son, get his inheritance. It's crazy. It's crazy. No. Is that possible? Really? Yeah. People are that nuts. We're going to kill, we're going to destroy everything that the owner has. We're going to fight back. It's like, really, that's, that's, not, that's not a real world. It can't be true. It's just crazy. It's outrageous. No, not really. So this is a God that is willing and believes it's necessary to confront us with, with, with our own hearts and astonishes us when he does it. That's it. What do I got, sir? I think that this parable presents us with a God who is generous, or these parables present us with a recurring theme that God is generous, forgiving, hopeful, expectant, glad for the help, and in need of those who will work in the world or the vineyard, and seeing it as a gift that's tendered, a ready gift that's tendered, a legacy of care and privilege is given to those who would work in the vineyard. Um, I'm reminded how destructive I can be. I'm reminded how often I want it to be my way. Or I want to state that regardless of the gifts that I've been given, that somehow my investment of effort makes it mine or makes me owner or makes me the person who possesses the ability to um, grant access or deny access. I'm also a little concerned of my tendency to, well, if it can't be my way, I'm going to blow the whole thing up. Right? So if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to destroy everything so that when you get what you want, it won't be worth anything. I call that Sherman's March to the Sea. It's, it's this idea of, and it's, it's a wonderful strategy, I suppose, in war, but I don't know that it works that well in the vineyard of the Lord. So I'm, I'm a little concerned about my tendency to destroy when it, I've been told it's not mine. I'm going to take my ball, I'm going to go. I'm going to destroy this so that whoever gets it next won't have it as easy as me, or even worse, so they won't want it, and they'll walk away from it, and I can have it back. So I, I like to focus more on what does this tell me about God, because those are the things that reinforce my understanding of my relationship to God. So that's what I got. My second question has to do with the cornerstone. Um, it, you might think of it as an Ebenezer. It, it might be that. 
But uh, what is the importance of this reference of a rejected stone becoming the cornerstone? And how do you hear verse 44, and I'll read it again, the one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. What are your thoughts, Don? It's a reminder to me that I grew up in a certain literary tradition and a a cultural tradition that makes me take a breath before I try to think about what this cornerstone is. Because it's a dynamic image. It's an, I think it's probably an ancient image that takes a lot of discussion to get to. Because it's, you know, it's, it's, there's a sense of moving, things falling, and there's a resiliency to it. It's not beyond the whole idea of a stone. You know, it's a, it's a lot, the closest I can get to it is what we do with children's literature. So many great authors do, which is, you know, this is the story of, well, you could see it. Uh, Tony the Rock, right? Tony was a rock. It's like, well, you know, well, children could do that. You know, and the rock did this, and the rock did that, and the rock is moving, and the rock is strong, and the rock can fly. You know, it's that kind of dimension I think we're we're dealing with when it comes to this cornerstone. So I'll just offer up uh, to get it back into the uh, the parable. Uh, corners. I think it starts with the idea of the vineyard, the conditions, nine-tenths of the law, for example, in the, in the mind of people. What is it? And with a cornerstone, what's a great cornerstone? And I think there's, a, there's a, a strong suggestion in this children's book that we're reading that uh, there are poor building standards and engineering codes at work here. How can that be? Why? How could that be? That makes no sense. That's not in our interest. And I will use terminology related to dark things. Oh, yes, but it's the beautiful one. What? The cornerstone. It's the beautiful cornerstone. You know, and I'm, of course, referring to the beautiful one uh, who who we we talk about through our literature uh, and the warnings and the presence that we think about. And so it's the beautiful one. Well, what about the engineering code? What about the resiliency? What about what well, it must be? It must be the greatest cornerstone. Why? Because we say so. It must be my vineyard. Why? Because I say so. I'll take no prisoners. Well, what about another cornerstone? Never. Why? It's beautiful. It must be great. I say it's great. We say it's great. We took a vote. Let's take a vote. What do humans say? We're practical people. We know how to plant vineyards. We know how to weed uh, uh, from another uh, parable. We know how to pull weeds out of a vineyard. It's a practical decision, but no. And in the face of that, this beautiful, obvious decision of people. And I think it suggests the decision I would make, too. I would join with the team. Don, which one do you want? I want the beautiful one. Why? Because we all say it's beautiful. We always have done it that way. Nope. So, you know, the strength, strength beautiful. Do we see it? Maybe not. You know, it's a lot like uh, the parable we're going to read next week. Um, is it? Is it? Uh, is it enduring? Well, it must be because it's beautiful. Is it inflexible? Is it decisive? Well, of course it is. It's beautiful. Of course, the answer is no, it's not. It's uh, ugly. It's castaway. It doesn't belong here. The stone is basalt and not marble. 
I mean, it's just wrong. It's wrong in every way. And, uh, and yet it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. So this just, I can go on and on in terms of, you know, what we believe, the practical world, the truth of a practical world, which is the engineering and how we build things. is like, even that is wrong. And we have to pause and think about, is it beautiful? Or is it, or is it God? Is it, we believe it's right? Or is it Jesus? That's what I've got, Sarah. Yeah, I'm kind of with you. Um, it seems like this parable sets us up to compare what is a good cornerstone to what is a flawed cornerstone. Um, the notion that a cornerstone is the perfect piece you set first and that the courses of the building as you build them are based upon how well set that cornerstone is. So if you go to lay a run of additional brick or or stone above the cornerstone, will it be straight? Will it be strong enough to sustain the, the, the weight of the building as you start to put the building up? So if the stone is not the correct material or it's not straight, then the entire building is flawed and will likely tumble down. We see this building code challenge in Haiti. We see it throughout the United States on the coastal um, borders of Florida when the strength of a hurricane wind can decimate a building. So the cornerstone is a foundational stone, a stone that determines the strength of the entire building over its lifetime. If the cornerstone is flawed, or if that which we put as center of our lives isn't God, it's likely we will not have the strength to sustain our lives across time. When the world changes around us, or our health falls apart, or we encounter resistance within our own families, the question we have is, what are we basing our faith upon? Are we basing our faith upon the cornerstone that is God's cornerstone, or are we basing our faith on a cornerstone that is built on our our capacity, our desires, our understanding of what strength and foundational um, setting looks like? So I, I kind of thought about this in the sense of if we expect punishment and we receive grace, how do we respond? I'm thinking of um, Les Miserables. I'm thinking of that great book by Victor Hugo. And uh, we have these two main characters, one that has this imagination about the other. Javert is the law keeper, the person that chases Valjean. Valjean is the offender, the one that's, in Javert's mind, always going to be evil. He is corrupt from the start. And when he encounters in, in person, when Javert encounters Valjean over time and sees the good that Valjean has done and sees Valjean in a different light, Javert can't reconcile it. So I'm thinking about how do we respond when we, we are given this authentic grace and we see everybody around us given the same authentic grace. How do we respond? 
Um, if we expect to be cheated and are granted the opposite, how do we respond? Like Jonah going to Nineveh, right? So he goes there and he's ready for God to bring down hellfire and brimstone. Boom, let's see it. I want to see spectacular. I want to see this destructive nature. And he encounters a Nineveh that receives the word and changes at the core of who they are to follow the living God. So when we think other people don't deserve that grace and then they get it, how do we respond? And how does injustice contain the seeds of its own destruction? We've, we've been taught the wages of sin are death, and we've seen this over time. We've watched, we, we say, it's going to hurt really hard when karma comes back around and whoops up on you. <laughs> so it's an interesting notion that we have about how our inability to accept perfection lands at our feet when we don't think we deserve it or we don't think other people deserve it. So that's how I heard this um, falling on the stone and having the stone fall on you, cornerstone thinking. What do you got, Bill? Uh, I think this illustrates another challenge with parables. We've made a shift from the animate worker's vineyard to an inanimate object called the cornerstone. And as I look at my life, I don't think I've ever experienced a cornerstone in the way that it was meant in that time. As I understand it, I think you noted, Sarah, it's the first stone that's set. It sets the positioning and boundary. In my world, cornerstones are decorative and symbolic. They're almost stuck on afterwards and sometimes a time capsule. So we have this trouble of leaping across millennia to to understand the critical importance of the symbol that Jesus used. It's, it's the focal point. It provides position and stability for the structure. Conceivably, removing it could bring down the whole building, or at least in some way, harm it. And in the same way, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of our faith journey. That's why it's important uh, to go from an inanimate cornerstone to the living Christ. What would the spirit of Christ, the cornerstone of my life, want me to do in this situation? It, it is in Christ that we most fully see the face and heart of God. So to act out of accord with the will and spirit of Jesus Christ is to fracture and risk, as it were, removing the cornerstone. Now, in a sense, with your first question in mind, Sarah, what most delights me in this is what we learn about God is nothing we do can destroy the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom, I'm quoting from verse 43, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produce the fruits of the kingdom. That doesn't let me off the hook, but Don, back to your the thing about ownership, mine, mine. The kingdom of God is not mine. And when I fail, it's not if. When I fail, God's kingdom 
prevails. Yeah, I also want to add, if we've made ourselves the cornerstone, we will be crushed. So, because we don't have the strength, we don't have the material, we're not the right stuff. Okay, thank you, Bill, that that was lovely. Um, Third question, compare and contrast the response given to Jesus in verse 41 with how we understand the response from God to be given through Jesus Christ. Um, Verse 41, just so you have a point of reference, um, they, the listeners, respond to Jesus' question about what will God do or what will the landowner do to the tenants. And the response is, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him produce at harvest time. So what are your thoughts? Bill, I'm coming back to you. Um, How do you compare and contrast the response that, that the listeners give to Jesus with God's response to us? Uh, excellent question. And it, you, I appreciate your noting that they are the religious leaders. The, the, the harshness in this comes not from Jesus, but from the listeners. So thank you for that highlight, that spot on. Uh, it, it illustrates the capacity of these spiritual leaders for utter harshness, uh, but they get it. Again, the owner won't be thwarted. These religious leaders recognize that the work will be given to somebody else. Um, it's, the language is graphic and exaggerated, I think, to make a point again God is sovereign, and one of my favorite stories is in First Kings 19, where uh, Elijah's feeling sorry for himself. I, Don, talk about me, mine, I, even I alone am left, and what does God say to him? I, by the way, there are 7,000 others who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Uh, Elijah, take your uh, mask off that doesn't let you see anything stop staring in the mirror and recognize Elijah my kingdom's work is still being done so for me Sarah this parable is a call to obedience again I'm repeating myself with a reminder that even when I fail to do God's will God is still at work in ways I don't perceive reminding me that no one has a lock on understanding and doing God's work on earth. So in spite of the harshness and I think exaggeration in this parable, it really is a source of hope and confidence that God is at work. Thank you for the questions. I'm going to throw my two questions. I have a couple of questions in response to this. Um, Again, what does this parable demonstrate to us about God? And how does God respond, or does God respond the way the Pharisees or the listeners suggest? And I'm going to go with no. Um, God instead offers sacrifice, love beyond measure, and the ransom of the unloving with grace. 
that doesn't sound like throw those wretches out and put them to death and give the kingdom to someone else, um, to me. Don, what do you think? Compare and contrast the response given to Jesus in verse 41 with how we understand the response from God given through Christ Jesus. Well, hey, Bill, this gives me hope. And it's tough to say that and, and something that is, is filled with violence and this darkness, but it gives me hope because there's God in the dialogue. There's God in the searching and the words and it, what we're doing today. Like God is revealed in, in this uh, discussion. And I, I, the push and the pull and the ugliness of it is not something to look away from. I think we're encouraged to look at it. And even though it's an extreme in some ways, I think it's important to find what's familiar in it. Uh, Sarah, you brought it up a few minutes ago. You know, do we live in a culture that uses analogies of scorched earth, battlefield, war, elimination of obstacles? We sure do in everything. We use it in sports and everyday language. So, it's, you know, what, listen. It's not like eliminate. It's like I think the dialogue that's going on here, it's like, listen, do you hear it in yourselves? So in a way, we're repulsed by it, and the listener here is repulsed by it. Uh, and they give a lot of the right answers, which is like, this is outrageous. This is no good. But I think Jesus is saying, you know, is it familiar to you? It is so familiar to them, they fall into the discussion agenda, which is, well, what are you going to do about it? Eliminate them. Scorched. Let's do some scorched earth on those people, right? They deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth. So I think, I think knowing that we have to get closer to it well, we realize there's a lot of human life here. They didn't create the vineyard. They took it. They didn't make, you can use whatever analogy you want. They didn't create heaven. They didn't create God's kingdom. But they believe they're entitled to it. They're going to take it. And so what is, what is familiar to me in taking things or feeling entitled? All right? And then going back and standing back as a judge and a jury or acting this on God, going, what do you do to people like that? You prison them. You you it put them. You give them life sentences and lock them away. These people are like we would kill them. I mean, it's like you know we're talking about ourselves here in the end. We rip, or we're continuing to create chaos. And when we think about you know if if the answer is we're going to clear the table of these people, and we find ourselves actually recognizing mine, 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 what is the grace of God? Thanks be to God. Because so I, I certainly don't want to leave the ultimate justice in my hand. We're, we're asked to seek justice and love kindness. Uh, where does that begin? Uh, and I think it starts with the people that came onto the scene here came later. It was already built. The kingdom was already built. In the beginning, on day one, it exists. Their first day is marked here. They came on to the, They came into the kingdom. They came into the vineyard. And I think it's a reminder that we we don't own day one. Like, you know, Bill is saying it's ours. No, it's not. We create it? No. Are we entitled to it? No. Now ah, this is a story of the grace. This is the story of the sacrifice of Jesus. Not not entitled at all. But we're still taking and taking and taking. Uh, but in the beginning for us, where is that? We weren't there at the beginning. Not the mind of God. I can't even imagine what the cornerstone is. You know, I, I, I want a beautiful cornerstone, but it's 
doesn't work. I don't even have the cornerstone. I can't even provide the cornerstone. That's all been done. So what do we do on day one? Our day one, when we come on the scene, when we go into the kingdom. And I think it's the beginning of the day. What do I do today? We are, we are meeting today at 6 a.m. Eastern time. We've got a whole day before us. What am I walking into today? What do I think I own? Judging people? Taking things? Thinking I own things? Using analogies of violence and scorched earth? Using metaphors that suggest to the people that chaos is the only way? I don't think so. It's a real challenge in here, but I'm with you, Bill. There's a brightness to it, which is, you know, you keep asking, Jesus keeps asking questions. It just keeps falling apart. <laughs> I can't get us out of the chaos that we're in. Thank you. You know, there's, there's Jesus. There's Jesus. That's why I've got Sarah. I will say that if I were to ask another question, it would be, what do you understand the vineyard to be? And just to follow up, I think the vineyard of God is your heart. I think that without the cornerstone, the very thoughts of who you are, your identity, are flawed. And that we can only see clearly when we build our identity hinged upon that cornerstone. So I, I will say it's really, I think my heart is my own, my thoughts are my own, and my identity is my own when I know completely that all of those things hinge upon the very understanding of who God is to me. So I would say, ask that question. What's the vineyard of God versus what's the vineyard of man? That's all I got this week. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for those compelling questions, too. And for those listening in, next time, next week, Matthew 22, 1 through 14, another challenging parable. So we'll see you on that in a bit. Uh, and uh, Palmasia Presbyterian Church makes this podcast possible. It's at 3501 West San Jose. That's in Tampa, Florida. For more information, you can go to palmasia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A.org. We commend that slide to you for other discussions of lectionary, sometimes other aspects of lectionary, like the, the Psalms or letters, uh, disagreements and discussions of Scripture, prayers, meditations, outstanding music, sermons, opportunities to take communion. So check that out. You're always welcome. And we'll see you next time.